Welcome back to another episode of the Life in Digital podcast. This week, I'm joined by the incredible Jasmine Dottiwala, where we dive into asking the difficult questions when it comes to diversity and inclusion. For those unfamiliar with Jasmine's experience, she's currently part of Netflix's UK editorial and publishing team and has built an enviable career in the world of TV and media, holding positions with Viacom, the BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Sky. Alongside these roles, she has had a close partnership with Media Trust. Media Trust is a charity whose mission it is to provide a voice and opportunities for underrepresented groups within the media and creative industries. We discuss what more businesses can and should be doing to make a positive change when it comes to diversity and equality, and what this really means for today's talent. I hope you will enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Jasmine Dottiwala. I'm a multimedia broadcaster on TV, radio and digital platforms. I've worked at the intersection of TV, music, media, diversity and inclusion and the third sector at Media Trust for over 20 years now. Well, Media Trust is 10 years, but my whole career has been about 20. And yeah, just thank you for having me and speaking to me. You know, the work that um, Media Trust do wasn't a part of my my vision and range 10 years ago and and it, in fact it's funny how it started I was at the BBC developing new TV programs around music and creative arts and there was something on the intranet that said do you think you can do diversity better than us and I rolled my eyes and went yeah and my colleague that was sitting next to me went well if you think you're so good at it why don't you go for it and I went it's not my my sort of job but do you know what I'm going to apply for it and I'm going to go over there and tell them what they should be doing because <laughs> you know 10 years ago I was young and you know brash and full of myself and uh, you know you just went when you're much younger you have the um ignorance of youth and, and and you know you think you're the first person who's done anything ever so I went over there and I would I did the interview and I said look if you're going to do diversity programs for young people across London in television it can't just be let's pick up a camera and show you a little bit about how to edit let's really make this work use your connections your media trust you know you're at the hub of 50 incredible big tv production companies advertising and marketing platforms and you know you've got everyone in your corner why why wouldn't you make this bigger and they just looked at me you know this panel of people in a bit of a shock and a surprise and then I sort of walked out of the building after the interview thinking yeah I told them and then I thought I'd never heard fear from them again and about two hours later I got a call from um, one of the guys who had interviewed me my boss at the time Mark Mark Dodd and he went um uh well uh we'd like to offer you the job and I was a real moment of shock because I was like oh now you're going to have to put your mouth, you know, money where your mouth is and actually do the job. So it was a shock to go from working in the broadcasting sector to Media Trust, who are essentially a charity. They're a third sector media charity. They sit at the crossroads of where all the big communities, young people and charities meet all the broadcasters and it's a real crossroads it doesn't just go one way the traffic is two ways so for example media trust's main job is training people from charities communities and young people around media skills it's giving them skills in the digital world giving them skills in tv radio production so that they can better have their voices heard and represent their communities but then on the flip side it also helps 
all of the big corporate partners, you know, whether that's Twitter, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Channel 4, Sky, the BBC, BBH, Mediacom. I mean, it, it literally is giving access to all of those big companies, access to the grassroots communities. So something might kick off in the news, it might be a breaking news story. And often those people will come to Media Trust and say, listen, something's happened um, on television. There's a show called the, My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding. Um, the Gypsy Roma Traveller community are really upset. We'd like to speak to some people who are media trained from the Gypsy Roma Traveller community, and we'd like to get their perspective on it. Or it might be Black Lives Matter has just happened. We'd like to speak to some um, young people who would like to talk about how it's impacted their progression, their lives and their careers and their experiences. So it's a real two way road of us helping um, connect the media and creative industries into the grassroots organizations around communities, charities and young people. And I think I have the best job in the world in that the last 10 years has seen me oversee the youth department at Media Trust. And in effect, that means that I am responsible with my team for setting up and delivering training programs all across the UK when it comes to young people. And when we talk about young people, they're young adults, really. They're not kids. They're 18 to 25 years of age. They're people that want to work in media, perhaps don't have the access, don't have the connections in the industry. Um, they just need pipelines and pathways to grow themselves. And so, you know, I've worked on these incredible programs. You know, there's a program called Breaking Into News with ITV News, where I TV news teams all across the nations and regions in this country help bring in new talent from different communities. And so far across seven years, seven out of 10 people who have applied for that course are now working in wow. newsrooms across the country. You know, there's a program called London 360 that I first created when I came to Media Trust. And it was literally just six months of teaching young people in London what it's like to work in TV production. So we gave them intense training for the first two months. And then for the last four months, we had them make a TV magazine show. And that magazine show aired on Sky, Freeview and Virgin. And so they got really cut their teeth. You know, there are people who work in television for a decade and don't ever get their name on a credit on a show. Whereas these young people, by the time they finished with us, they could shoot, they could edit, they could, create a story on television, on radio, in print, press and digital. They were extremely valuable to their employers. And that's why so many independent TV companies ended up hiring our young trainees because it was young people who could, you know, cut a sizzle tape, run the digital media platforms, go out and shoot, edit a bit. And, you know, adults tended not to have all of those skills. You know, when I was coming up, in my generation, there'd be about a team of five or six of us going out on a shoot. There'd be a camera person, sound, producer, talent, makeup, hair, um, transcribing. Like, you know, now each of our young people can go out and do that by themselves. That makes them extremely valuable to businesses. So, you know, that's me and that's what I've been doing over the last decade at Media Trust. Wow. <laughs> Just a few things then. Just a few things. And with the young people, because I know we came to one of the um, awards ceremonial when they were presenting, these students were presenting their work back to a panel. And it was just incredible what the guys were being exposed to so much more than if you just went to do a university degree. That was my, I kind of came away thinking these people have been so enriched by the work that you guys do. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
those training programs and I guess I'm thinking a little bit about how difficult it's been for young people especially over the last year how has this been so instrumental to them getting into these sectors particularly when there haven't been as many people hired this this time sure so Amy the graduation ceremony showcase that you came to was for a program that we do called creativity works and that's a 12-week program so it's three months it's funded by the mayor's fund for london in association with the barclay foundation Citibank. and the way that program works is we get around 30 young people every six months those 30 young people are londoners the criteria is that they have to have gone to secondary school here in london and the reason that is a criteria that's put in by the funder is obviously you find that most people um, that work in the media industries they come from all across the UK but also internationally you know London is where everyone makes a, a, a journey towards to try and make their you know livelihoods their career everyone knows you go to the big smoke to make your career happen and so what our funders were saying is we also don't want our young people who are at grassroots who have been brought and brought up in this city to miss out on opportunities because other more privileged people have come into their city and taken those jobs so the criteria was they had to be 18 to 25 they had to have gone to secondary school here and they had to be out of work for i think it was at least three to six months or something. And in our in the industry, in this world, that's called a NEAT candidate. NEAT spelt N-E-E-T, which stands for not in education, employment or training. And our point of that program is that within six months of them finishing that program, they would go from NEAT to EAT. So EAT being education, employability or training. And so we had these boxes to tick, you know, it wasn't just a frivolous work experience program where you get to train young people and do all these great things around radio podcasting and marketing and shooting editing, you know, we teach them how to use Ofcom and compliance rules so that when they go out into the industry, wherever they are here in the UK, they know all the rules around working there immediately. You know, that's the type of skill that it would have taken me at least four to five years in a TV company to pick up. You know, when I was first a runner, I was making teas and coffees, photocopying scripts, meeting and greeting guests at the door and bringing them through to the green room. And if I was lucky in year two, I got to maybe shoot second camera somewhere and transcribe some interview notes. And it was a very long drawn out process. But when you come from... Um, an underrepresented group in society, you don't have the luxury like I did of living at home with my mum. You know, if I can stay at home, I could have stayed at home, you know, till I was 30, 40, probably my whole life, it wouldn't have mattered because my mum had a home that I could stay in and I could have afford the luxury of being a trainee in a media company. You know, people from my world didn't work in media companies. So for me, it was very exciting, but I was lucky that I didn't have to bring in money to pay the rent. Lots of young people nowadays all over this country can't afford that luxury. So with our program Creativity Works, we had to make sure that within those three months, these young people went from literally zero to 100. You know, they had to have the basic skills around shooting and editing. They had to write the basics of a listicle for a newspaper column. They could record and create a radio podcast for a brand. They could brainstorm marketing areas. They could understand marketing and SEO. So for example, young people today, they all already do marketing and SEO. They know how to do that. They just don't know that they know. 
and they don't know what it's called in formal corporations like ours. But all day they're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and Snapchat. They're counting their likes. They're learning how to grow their audiences. They're learning how to create memes and thumbnails. They're learning how to make create all these digital assets for themselves. They are their own brands. Now, all you have to do with young people like that is explain to them that they already have the skills. Now let's pivot those skills into a company. So instead of yourself being the brand on Instagram stories all day, um, how do you make that work for PlayStation or the digital company that you're working with? And what we found is they're doing really, really well. So in this last year, since lockdown, originally we were panicked thinking, we're normally used to being in a studio in real life, working with each other with TV cameras and being around each other, going into companies and buildings. How are we gonna make this work online virtually? But you know what? We really pivoted very quickly. We created lots of PowerPoints. I mean, I'm literally a PowerPoint genius now from never having to create one without my team at work to now creating stuff really quickly myself. But we found that because young people were stuck at home and they were isolated they weren't distracted by each other in the office you know in the office we would have lots of distractions people being late because of the commute you know getting a coffee or a tea needing to go to the loo being distracted by each other gossiping etc I mean they don't have those distractions at home during covid they are alone they are isolated and they are thriving and craving this interaction so even though we would have two hour sessions every single day they were here and they delivered and focused and created some incredible content in fact I would go as far as to say that the season that we just had this last year were probably the most intense focused group that we have had and more of them have gone into jobs in the creative industries than we've ever had before so in a way COVID was difficult for them, but we set them tasks where they had to go out and get fresh air and exercise. So for example, one of the first things in week one that we do with them is a photography um, masterclass. And so we said to them, right, the task is you go out into your community and we want photos around what makes your community positive. Then we want stories for the first blog around people in your community who are doing great things during the pandemic. We want you to find the hidden heroes around your local communities. So we would give them tasks that would have to make them go outside and walk around a park or look for people. And it kept them connected. And it also reminded them that they were a part of a positive community doing great things. So you switch, you know, you switch the lessons and the learning to, to things that are going to help their mental health and well-being now. Similarly, when we did their radio podcasting week, it was about going and finding those interviews and other talented young people that were doing great things during the pandemic. So you basically just pivot the course and the program to whatever is going on in the world. And how has media trust changed in the 10 years that you've worked there? Do you know, it's really funny, Amy, because when I first started working there, it was everything I expected a charity to be like, you know, it was very, I, I think I didn't know much about the third sector, you know, people are really um, careful about not being too shiny and twinkly in the third sector. So when I'd say things to them like, let's do a TV show and put it on air, it would be like, oh, 
but we can't do that. We're meant to be a poor charity. And I'd be like, but you're not using money for it. You are literally using your partnerships with the companies that you have. And then I'd say things like, let's get celebrity ambassadors for our programs who come from similar backgrounds to our young people. So for example, I got people like Alicia Dixon, who, well, Alicia Dixon, right, presenter, musician. I got people like Ashley Walters, the actor. Um, just so many different people to come in, Naughty Boy, the musician, you know, people from the same backgrounds and areas that our young people were training in. And I got them to be celebrity ambassadors. And I think initially at Media Trust, there was a sense of, we can't do this because we don't do celebrities. We're meant to be a charity. We're meant to be humble and smaller. And I'd say, guys, you need to get out of thinking like that. You know, you can still be a charity and be big and twinkly and shiny. You should make people feel proud of supporting a charity and, you know, get people involved. And the main thing I've seen change over this decade is the conversations that we were having 10 years ago that were seen to be taboo subjects, uncomfortable subjects, are now mainstream media news. And those taboo subjects what came to us from our young reporters, the young people that we were training, we had three tick boxes um, at the on the start of that program. And I'll never forget it because one tick box was they've got to make a fortnightly half hour magazine show. And that magazine show for television was going to have three minute mini segments all the way through it. So about, you know, five or six mini segments every show. So the young people would act like reporters. And honestly, it was my dream job because here was I pretending to play at running a newsroom. You know, I've worked in newsrooms my whole life, you know, reporting at Channel 4 News and at Sky News. But suddenly I got to be the editor and the boss and I had all these young reporters and young people are brimming with ideas they're unstoppable they're fearless and so the first year that we started this program London 360 it was the London riots in 2011 and so our young reporters went out and they captured the most incredible footage because of course right so we delivered we gave them you know the cameras they used our computers and stuff but they went out there on the streets of Harlesden, Tottenham, Central London, wherever they were, they captured footage, they interviewed their peers who were rioting, and they got this incredible footage. And we made this incredible half hour special called about the London riots. And it was played on Sky and Freeview and Virgin. And it gave Sky one of its biggest ratings around the riots. And so people were starting to see that these young people were not only pitching great stories, they were able to create and access the content in a way that your average, you know, middle class group of white men in a white van that jumps out, you know, you know, if you imagine on, on the one hand, I've got my Channel 4 news crew, you know, middle aged white guys jumping out of a van in, in the heart of a suburban town in London. And who are the young people going to talk to? Are they going to talk to young people that look and sound like them? Or are they going to go towards the people that are like those guys that we've never seen here before, right? So it's all about access, accessibility. We had taboo conversations. So I did a um, joint TV and radio platform segment with BBC Radio London. One of my friends up there is a guy called Eddie Nestor. He does the drive time show on BBC Radio London. And Eddie would come in and he would every week pitch the young reporters their task. And, and part of their task was, 
unearth stories for us, give a voice to hidden communities and come on the radio with me and tell our listeners about it. I mean, that was mind blowing for young people because now not only did they have a TV show that was going out and they were reporting and presenting and producing and editing it themselves, they were also now given a, t a radio slot for BBC Radio London. And so some of the taboo subjects they started covering 10 years ago were things like FGM, female genital mutilation, um, male suicide in, in men in, in the UK. Um, what else was there? God, there was a whole load of stuff. There was mental health and young people. There, there was a series of them. And, mm -hmm. and no one at the time took it seriously. And it's interesting because all of those topics that were taboo, uncomfortable conversations back then are now part of mainstream discourse. So when I then did an interview with Stormzy for Channel 4 News and I asked him about depression and mental health, that was the bit that went viral. But originally my producers had said to me, oh, no one cares about that. Let's just stick to his album or let's do more you know, salacious content around the police kicking his door down in his Chelsea apartment. But I knew because I, I'm in communities that are underrepresented that male depression, ma masculine toxicity around hip hop and music is a big deal. And it's a conversation that people don't talk about. So having all these young reporters trained up with us at Media Trust means they're going out there. They're now all across the industries. You know, we've got people at Channel 4, at Sky, um, producing Radio 1 radio shows. We've got people at the Jewish Chronicle. We've got people, we've just got people everywhere now who are changing those conversations. They're bringing in more diverse pundits and panelists on short, on talk shows. And it's incredible to watch. Like when you see it in action and you go, wow, this is now cyclical because the people that trained with us 10 years ago, who are now in senior positions in television are now coming to us to hire their new runners now. So it keeps revolving. That diversity and inclusion and equity is all a part of a cultural landscape. It's really exciting. Things have definitely changed since I've been at Media Trust. And you mentioned their equity, and I think that was something that came up when we first spoke. Can you talk a little bit more about why you think that's important, particularly when we're talking about diversity and inclusion? Sure. So, you know, I've started to feel like someone who is this diversity person, right? But I've been fighting for diversity unconsciously since I came out of university. You know, when I first got my first job at MTV and Channel 4, I had always tried to bring my pals in, right? Because this is what people do. People work at places, they want to work with their friends, they want to work with people who are similar to them, speak like them, look like them, behave like them. And when you're like me and you go into an industry where no one talks like you because they all went to Oxford and Cambridge or they suddenly break into a Latin um, joke and you don't have an idea what they're talking about. It can be very isolating. So of course you try and bring your own pals in. So even back when I was a runner in TV, I've been trying to bring my pals in. Even when I was a head of news international at MTV, I'm trying to get people from communities where I live to come in and be interns and runners. So. One of my bosses at Viacom said to me one year after I'd been there about five years, he said, do you realize that whenever you hire new runners, because we had three runners in our team every season and that season would last a year. He said to me, 
you've always had in every cycle of runners, a black person, an Asian person and a white person. And do you know what, Amy? It was wild because genuinely I had never done it intentionally. It was just what had happened when mm. the applications had come through and we'd looked at people. And of course, I come from Southall and Halsden where black, brown and white people live together in harmony and always have, you know, whether it's groups of friendships or banter or whatever, we all live together and we rub along beautifully. So in my head, that was what perfection looked like. And so I was bringing in all these groups of interns who then progressed through middle management at Viacom over the years. And I just genuinely hadn't been aware of it. And so when he said that, it might have switched on something in me that went, wow, I have been doing that, haven't I? And then when, you know, people keep bringing in work experience for diverse people. And I knew when they meant, you know, when we get an HR email that said, guys, we'll be going to be bringing in some work experience next week. It's for diverse young people from blah, blah, blah. And I'd look at it and I'd feel a bit sick because I knew what they were talking about were people like me, just younger versions of me. And I thought, God, that's what it was like when I went in to do work experience somewhere. People would refer to me like that. Like it was a bit of a charity case, pity party. Let those poor young people in who are underrepresented in media but I'd look at the work experience and I'd say to HR you realize what we're doing you're bringing them into MTV this beautiful building you're showing them what's possible you're giving them access to pop stars who are at the top of the international charts and they experience this for two weeks and then we go bye-bye you know that's the end of your work experience now that doesn't do anything what it does is you know, it might spark something in some young people, but if there are no pipelines or access routes for them to get in, what you've done is you've made them even more depressed because now they know what's out there and they can't get a bit of that. So when I was looking at that advert that said, do you think you can do diversity better than us? I thought, yeah, I know I can. I know I can because I've watched it over the years. I've watched it at different companies. I mean, I'd worked by that point. I'd worked across many different TV broadcasters and they all did diversity the same. You know, there's someone at the very top who's their head of diversity and inclusion. That person helps bring entry level people in and they can constantly and consistently train them up so this whole thing of we need to train new talent you can keep training new talent but if that new talent has nowhere to go all you do is you create thousands of people on the bottom rung of this ladder who are constantly trained with nowhere to go so I know that you've got to make them better than their Oxford and Cambridge counterparts. And that's what we did with the programs at Media Trust. We made sure that, you know, and, and then it's interesting, Amy, because we'd often get Oxford, Cambridge graduates applying for the course at Media Trust. And I'd say to them, why are you applying for this? You've got a degree and you're ready to go out into the world. But there'd always be things that they didn't know how to do. So they might have a master's degree in media or theatre or communications, but it was all theory and they'd never put any of it to practical use. And so even, I, I'll never forget, there was one, one guy who was incredibly intelligent and articulate but he just was terrified of picking up the phone and starting an initial conversation in order to um, bring in pundits for the TV show that we were doing. So we had to teach him how to write a script and outreach to people that might want to be on telly. So there was a real difference in what Oxford and Cambridge were pushing out to what we were pushing out at Media Trust. And, you know, all the independent TV companies, you know, my friends and peers who are heads at these companies would say to me, 
when are your next graduates graduating? And they'd want to be sat in the audience because they would look at them and go, we loved her, we loved him. Can we speak to her? Can we speak to him? And it was amazing because this is how, I guess, careers fairs have worked in the past where people like me wouldn't have gotten chosen because we didn't sound right, we didn't look right, we didn't dress right, we didn't have the right surname or right sounding name or we came from areas that they weren't used to. And now here were the top people in the creative industry sitting in our audience and continue to, even since we've pivoted online, they, they join us online like you did. And they go afterwards, they go, amazing, we'd like to speak to this person, that person. And now those people are all in there, pipelined, flourishing at middle management, flourishing at senior management. And it's a beautiful cyclical pattern that just keeps going. And I'm just really proud of it. Yeah, I, I reiterate, like just watching what your guys had done was amazing especially I speak to graduates quite a lot entry-level candidates and it is there's unless somebody has done a work placement it's all theory based so I think it's testament that people want to join even if they have done a university mm. degree. Well it's this beautiful model right that Media Trust have with our corporate partners so if you've got corporate partners from BBH, Mediacom, Google, YouTube, BBC etc those corporate partners are coming in to lead masterclasses and they're doing whole day sessions around skills that they need young people to have. So if you've got people from Channel 4 coming in and going, right, this is how we make a marketing campaign for our biggest shows. Then you've got people from Disney coming in and going, this is how we pitch marketing campaigns for our biggest shows. So you've got actual real life teams coming in to teach young people the absolute modern up-to-date styles of how to work. I mean, I would be learning stuff. You know, I'd be sitting in the background of these sessions and it's absolutely added to my value proposition when I go out and I talk about digital or TV. So no wonder these young people are flourishing. They're fearless, they're digital natives. They're already understanding what marketing and SEO in the digital and future tech worlds mean. And now not only do they have the skills themselves, but they've got people who are creating these um, campaigns every day, working with them on pitches and challenges. And you know, the one thing that we were really um, careful to underline was that this wouldn't feel like university. It wouldn't be like just a session where our trainees sit back and just listen to someone talking. The, we always insist that our masterclass leaders come in and they do a three-part session. First part is my job and my journey. Who am I? What do I do? And how did I get here? The second part is always an open Q&A so the young people can ask them anything about their jobs. And then the last part is always a practical learning where the masterclass teacher has to teach them the basic skills. So I say to people, when you first started at your company in the first three years, what did you learn that you could teach our trainees in one hour? So they teach them it and then they set them a task. The young people go off into their breakout rooms on Zoom or wherever it is. They create their task or their pitch and they come back an hour later and they pitch it to, to the trainer. I mean, that is how the real world works. So it means that our young people are confident. You know, they go out to newsrooms. Some of them write testimonials from me, you know, two years after they've been working. And the one thing that they always say was pitching to Jasmine was much easier than pitching to our editor because, you know, I am ruthless. I am a, a believer of tough love because I think a lot of the educational 
facilities that I speak to, they do this lovely thing where everyone's equal, everyone gets the same choices, everyone will get the same chances in life. But I know that that's not true. So I'm one of those kids that was told that. And then it wasn't true because actually it was my friends, parents who are more connected and, and those young people that got the better chances. So I have to prepare our trainees to know that it's not going to be easy and you're going to get knockbacks and we're going to give you masterclasses in how to be resilient. And I'm going to make you stand up and speak in front of everyone and you're going to pitch your idea and you're going to publicly speak with confidence. And when you get a knockback, it's going to be fine because you've got four other ideas up your sleeve to pitch, right? So we train them on how to be resilient, keep going. And, you know, it's worked for them. They're out there and they're flying. And can we talk a little bit about when these, um, I mean, predominantly spoken about young people, but when we are hiring more ethnically diverse people into companies, how do we create systems where they stay? Like you said, there's a massive emphasis on this funnel, right? Where we're just hiring lots of initiatives, lots of partners, but then what are you seeing work to help people stay in these businesses and get to leadership levels? Well, I think what you have to remember is when we talk about diversity, we don't just mean ethnically, right? So we do mean, you know, embracing people regardless of their ethnicity, culture, gender, um, ability, all of those are underrepresented in the media, uh, and specifically around disability. But when it comes to ethnic groups, there are lots of cultural barriers. So for example, the digital teams that I work with, whether it's you know, the Googles and the YouTubes of the world, all of those guys just seem to do things that are fairer because they're international brands. When you're in an international brand and you've got the head of your company who's an Asian man or an African man, you do things naturally that are inclusive of everyone. So instead of just having a Christmas holiday, you'll also give people who are, um, I don't know, Jewish or Asian holidays for Hanukkah and Eid or Diwali. So it's about putting in place things that are equal all across the country, all across the company that you're, start, that you're sitting at. You know, it's also, it's about setting KPIs, not just for business, but for diversity targets. So for example, as I said, there are a million initiatives around women in March for International Women's Day. There are loads of initiatives around Black History Month in the UK in October or in America, if it's Black History Month, it's February. So, so you've got all these initiatives, but there's no KPIs. So you're just ticking boxes. You're going, let's ask someone black to speak around Black History Month. But when you ask them, you don't want to pay them. You basically say, we're doing a company-wide international forum around Black History Month. We'd love you to come and talk to our staff, but we don't have any budget or expenses, but we can promote you on it. Well, that in itself is a conflict, isn't it? Because you're saying we value women to speak or we value black people to speak or people with disabilities to speak, but we're not paying them. And we're talking about giving people equity, equal chances. So if you're asking someone to prepare a speech for you and you're asking them for their time and that's going to add value to your company, why wouldn't you pay them? So that's one thing that I see often, you know, people asking people to do things for free when they suggest it's all about diversity and inclusion. So you need KPIs that are, well, by which date are we going to have our company representative of the world that we're trying to represent? You know, ask questions in your company. You know, how many heads of department at your company are women? How many heads of company at your department are 
of a different ethnic race or culture? You know, are they a part of the board of the board of trustees? You know, the one thing that I find really funny now is young people and trainees that go into these companies are asking in interviews, they say, can we see a picture of your board? Can we ask you how diverse your board is? I mean, I can't even imagine going into interviews when I was younger asking questions like that. So, you know, look and observe what's going on in your companies. You know, is there a sense of one female boss is in and then one is out? And do you only make space for another female at the top when one's left? You know, does the company make it easy for women to juggle family and maternity leave and caring duties? I mean, to do this, you also have to have healthy paternity leave as well and male mental health structures in place and female mental health structures in place you know whatever structures are set up behind the media company you're also going to see that in front so in the same way that you know black people need the cosign of and input of our white peers to make positive diversity work at work women also need the input of men in these conversations so if you're doing something around international women's day you don't just invite the women the men have to come up come too we need the allyship of everybody else to make it work because otherwise it ends up becoming the way it used to be when i was coming up so anytime there was a diversity committee or a women's day or a asian or a black committee it would just be those people on it. So women for women's day, black for black, Asian for Asian, a disability for disability, makes no sense because you're preaching to the converted. Those people already know what the problems are. You need everyone else to sign in and be a part of the assertiveness and value of what equity is going to look like for them. You know, and whenever I talk to groups of people, one of the very first things I address in the first five minutes of us meeting is let's address the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is you're all rolling your eyes and sat back a little bit with your arms folded thinking, why am I here for this unconscious bias training? Why am I doing diversity training? What's in it for me? I don't need to do this. I'm fair. I'm just. And I address that right at the start. And we do a really quick quiz where um, we have pictures on the wall. People have to quickly touch pads and, and, and basically look at their own unconscious bias. And we're all guilty of it. You know, everyone has got unconscious bias, whether we like it or not, you know, and it's wild that people think that they don't. And, and, you know, when it comes to things like International Women's Day, for example, you know, there'll be women at companies who go, oh, I'm fine. I'm in middle management or I'm at senior management. But what about the women coming up behind you? How can you make it a better, safer, happier place for them in their career? So when you look at any aspect of women's lives, for example, they're poorer, right? There are so many examples of where women in their careers are going backwards and not forwards. You know, all the structural systems that exist in the Western world and absolutely within the media industries have tended to put women at a disadvantage. All those systems and structures have been put together by men, for men, because that's how they've been used to working. So you have to ask questions at your company, are there women at the decision-making tables and the top tables? Are there black people at those tables? Are there Asian? Are there disability? Is it LGBT represented? How many of those groups are developed for senior C-suite roles? How many of those voices are respected to give two-way feedback to mentors? Are how many of those people are given safe spaces to be their authentic selves? Or, you know, ask yourself things like, are women 
in traditional stereotypical roles, right? Because if we're going to make a change for younger women, it's all about optics. You know, often I've been in meetings or board meetings where the woman's expected to go around and pour everyone cups of tea or, you know, pass the plates and stuff. It's just little things like that. So challenge everything. You know, I truly believe that challenging challenging inequality is the best way to do it and accept in your company that when these things happen it's going to be uncomfortable we don't get to the other side of great until we pass uncomfortable uncomfortable taboo awkward conversations are necessary for us to get to that next level mm. and you said something about wrong and strong and I wondered if we could kind of end on that and then talk a little bit about your future as I'm aware we've only got about five more minutes yeah but talk to me a little bit about this wrong and strong particularly in light of what you've just said you know what I find it's a really fascinating space that I sit in because not only do I work at media trust at this media charity but I'm also still a broadcaster and pundit on television radio you know have my own radio show I, I write columns for newspapers and magazines and digital platforms and what's fascinating is to see things in action that often other people don't. So I will find that bosses and leaders. So I, I say that managers do the right thing and leaders do things right. No, actually, hold on. The other way around. I've got that muddled up. Managers do the right thing. Oh, God. Oh, managers. <laughs> Managers do things right, leaders do the right thing, right? So managers will go ahead and just do things the way they've always been done, but a leader will see where something's not working and what should be done right, and they will do the right thing if it needs to be changed. So often in boardroom meetings, I've sat there and things have been done wrong, but a leader is someone who's able to be big enough and mature enough to go, actually, maybe we've been doing that wrong Maybe we should change that. But the ones that are stubborn and are used to, you know, there's this whole patriarchy of men who are feeling uncomfortable right now because the world that they lived in before where they were the leaders and the kings, it's shifting because everyone is demanding an equal seat at the table. And we're not saying because we demand a seat, you don't have a seat. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is, give us the same equal opportunities that you've had. And that's shaken a lot of men in middle management and senior leadership roles because they're thinking, well, if I've always gotten to where I've gotten because traditionally society has told me that that's my role and I've never had to fight for it, what happens to me now? And I get that. But you know what? When you're thinking that, imagine what it's been like for everyone else. Imagine what it's been like for women trying to get themselves up their career and progress or everybody else in those groups. So being wrong and strong is when you see the problem, but you still won't accept it exists. I've seen that so many times where people will go, well, why should we have diversity programs? We don't do internships or why do we care about the next level? Because however great your company is, until you bring diversity in, you won't represent the public that you are hoping to get a buy-in from and that impacts your business's bottom line. And everything is about your business's bottom line, whether it, you know, your shareholders, your investors, your stakeholders, they want to make more money. They want the company to have a great reputation because they're aligning their own reputations to it. So until you can represent the whole of your 
you know, public, it, it doesn't make any sense. So don't be wrong and strong, be open, admit we make mistakes. I make mistakes every day. And one of the things that we train our trainees in right at the beginning is you're going to mess up. And when you mess up, own it really quickly and move on. Because the minute you dig your heels in and you go, no, I'm not wrong. This is what I believe. That's why society is at this really frictious moment at the moment. You know, we've all, you know, we've, we've pinned our flags to a certain team. We go, I'm a remainer or a lever. I'm for, you know, Meghan and Harry, or I'm not for Meghan and Harry. I'm for, you know, whatever it is. And, and you pin your, yourself to these different teams and then you can't be objective around subject so because I like Meghan and Harry doesn't mean I don't like William and Kate you know if you were bullying Kate in the media I'd also stick up for Kate and tweet about giving her some respect and, and I think people just think because you're on one side you're not on the other so when I say wrong and strong I mean don't be afraid to change your mind you know the best leaders I've worked with in the world and and believe me in my job as a broadcaster I've interviewed politicians princesses and pop stars I always say the three p's and the greatest leaders you know the Beyonce's the heads of Viacom those guys who are really doing well and keep reinventing themselves are the ones that go I didn't know that before but I know it now oh, I didn't consider that before, but I'm considering it now and I'm growing and I'm making my company a healthier, more equitable place to work. Amazing. And on that note, what are you looking forward to this year? And is there anything that you haven't been able to say that you want to kind of get across? Oh, God, <laughs> there is so much. I mean, you know, I will say that I love championing diversity yeah. and inclusion, but it does also become exhausting. And what I would like to say is it would be great if everyone recognized that people who champion diversity also get exhausted. And when they do, it would be nice if everyone else picked up the baton and ran with it for a bit, let us recharge our batteries and then come back to it. And, and just remember, you know, whatever the culture is within your company, is going to reflect outside the company and your ultimate bottom line and your output. So, you know, just stay open to change. Things are going to change all the time. I think when you when you start thinking you've done diversity and you've ticked that box, that's when you fail. Because even in my lifetime, things have changed and they'll continue to change, right? So when I was younger, my old school ballet teachers at my weekend ballet school used to call me the colored girl, right? I knew that they weren't coming from a place of hostility. It was just what their generation called people who had brown skin. And I've learned that colored girl has then changed to Asian girl, black girl, offensive word girls, um, you know, and, and it will keep changing. You know, the language around diversity and companies and cultures and communities will keep changing. So the minute you think, oh, we've got this because we've got a diversity, you know, statement, it will change again. You know, people will go, we don't want to be called this. We don't like the word BAME. BAME doesn't mean anything to us. Let's change it to something else. And as long as you're open to the fact that moving throughout life in your career, in your companies and society, the conversation will keep changing. Older people will say things like, we don't want to be called elderly. We don't want to be called seniors, right? It will keep changing. Just be open to it and listen to groups and go, oh, okay, 
you know, they don't want to be called mixed race or half caste or mixed heritage. What is it that you want to be? If you're open to things and you go, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize that the vernacular around that had changed. What is it that we're saying now? Yeah, just be open to those conversations. Mm. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and just learning so much from, from this conversation. I learn every day, Amy, yeah. and it will never stop. And it's exciting. I love seeing the world grow and I can't see, you know, I can't wait to see where all these companies take all this learning. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you. A big thank you to Jasmine and Media Trust for introing us. If you want to find out more about the work that Media Trust are doing, you can do so by following the links in our show notes or via our website. And go follow Jasmine over on Twitter and see the work that she is doing with Netflix. A big thank you for listening and we hope you will join us in a couple weeks time for another episode of the Life in Digital podcast.